Up next on episode 32 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss software piracy, dealing with public criticism, how to get people to answer your questions, and the ideal programmer office from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, Joel. Hey, Jeff. Welcome to Stack Overflow Podcast 32. 32. It's a good number. I know. It's the number of flavors of ice cream plus one. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there was a Stack Overflow thread about how... uh, being a programmer changed the way you view the world a little, and they said that... Uh, I know. If you can't just... If you don't know that that's two to the fifth, you're not yeah. a programmer. You view those as like, you know, normal... It's, it's a round, you know. 32 is a, yeah, it's a, very, it's a round very number. Round that's number. right. 32 yes. is like, oh, that's a round number. It's like 10, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 10? Yeah. What's 10? It's very strict. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's hexadecimal for... Okay, never mind. Yeah, exactly. So today is exciting for a couple reasons, oh. not just because we have the podcast, but... Really? I finally took the plunge, and now I'm uh, my all my tech friends will stop making fun of me because I now own a high definition television. Finally, oh, you you saw those advertisements about the whole analog to digital conversion, and you finally gave in. Went to I saw I saw a really funny one of those. I'll have to link it in the show notes. It's kind of hard to explain, uh, but yeah, I I I guess I you know also I want to do my part for the economy, right? You got to uh-huh. buy things. Part of being an American, you got to go out and consume product. But it's all made in in China, is it not? <laughs> I don't know where this one was made. It's a Panasonic model that I got. So, you, so you, it's a Panasonic, and, and how big is it? Like a forty-two inch or a uh, forty-six? I did a slight size upgrade. Cool. It, t- it took some wife approval, but she and have was you okay. have you mounted this to the wall now with the with the cables going no. through the wall and everything? No, wall mounting's tougher than we want to do. We have a pretty good uh, sort of media stand, so. Okay. We're okay with that. No. It's not so Michael and I got cut it. It's not so bad if you have drywall. And, yeah, uh, but just dealing with the cables coming out, I don't know. It, you just drill, drill a big hole. So you get one of those one of those one and a half inch drill bits. You go know, drill a hole yeah. at the top and a hole at the bottom. I don't. I don't think we're ready to take that on yet. I'm coming over to your house. I'm going to do it. That's I was actually thinking about writing a blog entry about just the whole concept of piracy and copy protection and where it goes. Yeah. And I was curious. So obviously copy protection is a giant pain in the butt. I mean, I don't think right. anyone would argue otherwise. But for example, Fog Creek, like you you guys sell software. But I don't, do you guys actually have to deal with piracy with your stuff at all? Um, I mean, have you historically had issues with it or – is it just the nature of your product means it's... I mean, obviously, the hosted stuff can't be pirated. That's just by definition. That's, yeah, that's but, a pretty awesome but you thing, guys yeah. sell, you guys sell a package, right, that somebody could theoretically go and install on... You know, we had a guy show up selling something, and I won't mention it by name, that was an, a complete pixel-by-pixel pixel clone of Fogbugs. 
This was early, like Fogbugs 1.0 days, and we were pretty sure that somebody had bought it and was reselling it because he had the source code. Really? Wow. And that's what we, we thought um, because he literally, he, it was word for word the same. His website marketing it used the same words. You know, I mean, he copied the, the, the language that we used to describe the product. Obviously, all the menus, the help files were all the same. Well, that's a little beyond piracy. I mean, that's like that's selling piracy. a clone of the product. That's... With a different name. Like, and we just thought he had gotten it and gone through and changed the name in most of the places and forgotten to change it in others or something like that. Wow. And, um, and the only thing that was strange is that the URLs didn't make any sense to us. And so uh, we, um, you know, we tried a few things that were known bugs and fog bugs, and he didn't have them, and we tried a few. We basically concluded that he had re-implemented fog bugs from beginning to end as a, from a code perspective, and his English just wasn't good enough to, to, to clone, to like rewrite the words in his own language. Mm-hmm. And we don't really mind him. If you want, you want to re- re-implement the code from beginning to end, you know, fine, be my guest, whatever. There's nothing proprietary about it. And, uh, um, but, but it is a copyright violation to use our help ta- text and our so on and so forth. So we sent him a nice letter saying, you may not be aware that it is a copyright violation to just wholesale copy our text, and we ask that you don't. And he went through and replaced it all with the, this equivalent thing in his own words. He just rewrote it in his own English as a second language. And uh, um, that was the end of that. Not now a very... he's a multi-million dollar corporation, right? That's right. <laughs> um, the funny thing is, then, then uh, we did sort of keep an eye on this guy. Um, he uh, uh, um, then proceeded to get pretty high Google PageRank through these kind of scam link exchange things. So his bug tracking software page had all kinds of links to travel agencies and bed and breakfasts in Zimbabwe and whatnot. And um, uh, uh, and that, that's how he got the page rank. And eventually, I think Google got pissed off at that particular method, and he got banished from the Google. <laughs> so um, anyway, that was, that was, that was, that's one case where I can think of. There's another case where um, uh, Michael got all furious because he found somebody selling disks of CityDesk on eBay or disks claiming to contain CityDesk, among other programs. So he went and got registered for this eBay takedown program where you send stern letters and you can get things you can get auctions taken down and he searched for auctions about 30 people selling these discs that had city desks city desk on it um and uh it turns out that it was some uh it was some freeware piece of crap that probably doesn't even run anymore from like dos 2.0 shareware floppy exchange days that happened to be named city desk Oh, so it wasn't even you guys. You know, it was one of these things. It's like use your Epson <laughs> X100 printer to make, you know, uh. pictures of balloons. I don't remember what it was. It wasn't even our thing. <laughs> but none of the people who who were running these auctions on eBay knew what it was. They were all running these businesses for a long time. There was this business model where you would download some shareware and make rip it onto a CD-ROM, and then you'd auction it off on eBay. Right. And, and and these were like the lowest rent people you could imagine. You know, like they had no idea about anything. They didn't know anything about anything. I think in I think in an earlier podcast you talked about how sometimes combating this stuff is like you're you're fighting very small people in every sense of the word. Right? Yeah. These are just small people doing it's small just, things. Exactly. That, it was such a waste of time. They were just not sad, even which really is worth sad for them. I mean, they're like literally like there's somebody sitting there making CDs with their computer and probably making four dollars. And you know what? And somebody's probably taking advantage of them. Somebody probably sold them a kit. It's like get rich using eBay. This this kit. You know, like the, you know you get those spams that are like make money with your computer at home. I, I just feel sorry for people like that. You know, you know what I feel like about those people? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like 
we put the recycling out every Sunday night, and there's people that come by and like steal the recycling. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of feel sorry for those people, right? Well, that's like, worth a, that's something that's worth a lot of money. The paper's worth. Good I know, but it, it's just you, these people. They 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 walk around. They're just individuals. They're not like trucks. It's not like this organization right, mob right, or anything. Right. They just schlep around from. And it, I just feel sorry for them. I like I can't even. I, I, exactly. I don't like that they're stealing from the city, basically. But, but it's just such a sad lifestyle. It's like I feel like mm-hmm. they're. What else can I really do to them? That's worse than what they already have. It's just not worth it. So anyway, so. at that point, it was just it was just a complete waste of time. The whole any any attempt to worry about piracy for even ten seconds um, was just a complete waste of time. So let, so let me clarify then. So for the for the product that you guys sell into corporations like Fogbugs hosted and the other yeah. products that you sell that people could potentially duplicate and run like you know a bajillion copies of internally and pay you guys for one copy. I mean, is that even on your radar? I mean, no. does that come up? Is it a problem? I mean, do you care even? I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't think anybody's doing it. <laughs> Sorry. Um. I'm just curious because you know I've never really sold shrink wrap software in my career, and I think actually a lot. I think strangely, probably a lot of developers have never really been in a position where they're actually selling shrink wrap software. You know, our philosophy not- was that we had to make it hard enough to copy that honest people would would not like. Basically, we, we if you were a, a dude in a in a company somewhere using fog bugs. And you needed another five licenses because you just hired some more people on your team. We wanted it to be harder to hack Fogbugs than to get the purchasing order out of your purchasing department, right? Because your purchasing department will pay for the software. That's just the way it is at legit corporations. They will pay for their software, especially in America. And, right. um, uh, and, and, and so when we originally – Sold Fogbugs like one. I can't remember when we when we finally did this. When we sold Fogbugs one, there was just this page you went to and you said, and we asked you how many licenses you had, and then that's how many licenses we enabled. And um, uh, I do suspect that there were some people that it was easier just to go type some false number into there than to go mm-hmm. extract a check out of the people that print the checks in the check printing department of your company. And so we made it a little bit harder where you have to get a license from us and put it in and there's a little bit of invalidation. If you just try to go into the source code and try to turn off the license hacking, you'll discover that there's a little tiny bit of code that lives in some compiled DLL and you'd have to figure out how to compile that. And all of a sudden, it's just not worth it. Just go get the check. So it's not right. going to stop anybody that's really being malicious. Uh, but it uh, will, it, you know, and, and, and that was our goal. Is like if you're, trying to, if you're trying to steal from us, you're going to succeed. But... If you're just too lazy to go get the check from the purchasing department, because I know they can be difficult, then you know we're going to fight you with just enough difficulty of hacking our licensing scheme that it's going to take you you know eight hours to figure out how to hack our licensing scheme. Right. I, I think that makes sense. And you know, I, I read somewhere. I have no idea where I read this, but I just I believe it to be intuitively true. Where they said that when you look at people as a whole in terms of their honesty and, and willing to steal things. Mm. 10% of people will never steal anything right. under any circumstances ever. Uh, 10% of people will always steal, yeah, no matter what the circumstances. And then for the other 80%, it depends. Right. You know, and I think that's where you're getting into, you know, keeping honest people honest by like sort of just exactly. locking the front door. Yeah. And, and I do believe in that. And it's really, it's not even that people want to steal from you. It's that people... No, it's that they tell themselves, all right, I can't, I can't get the purchasing department. I'm just going to temporarily work around this and I'll deal with them later because this is an emergency. 
Yeah, exactly. I think there's a big misunderstanding about a lot of piracy, except for the hardcore kind of people who just are never going to buy your product no matter what. Right. But for a lot of people, it, it's a question of following the path of least resistance, which I think is just the way people work mm-hmm. in general, regardless mm-hmm. of the topic. But particularly here, is if, if it's easier yeah. to steal your software then than it is it to legit. buy it, then they're going to steal it. I mean, it's yeah. it's not a question of good, bad. Yeah, I think stuff. iTunes finally finally proved that. Right, that that people would pay for music if it was easier and more reliable than pirating it, and, and that's another way reliable. It's like, can you deliver a better experience right. than the pirates? Because you know, you know, still piracy does take some work. I mean, it's never totally one click, although it's dangerously close now. Yeah, uh, particularly with the whole torrent scene has made it really a whole lot easier. Oh, you're still stuff. looking at torrents, man. You are so behind the times. We've all moved on to <laughs> Justin TV. <laughs> what? Yeah. I don't even know what that is. Oh, my God. Justin.tv. It's the big pirate bay of uh, live video. It's, it lets you watch anything. You can watch. Bob Eck today was talking about how like, you want to watch the, the Cameroon soccer games or whatever that you can never get. There's no way to get them. They'll all, there'll be somebody streaming them on Justin.tv. Oh, I see. I didn't, I didn't know that. But, but also but... movies, TV cool. channels. You know, I'm a little ambivalent about that. It's probably morally not correct to even say that, but I feel like for a lot of stuff, I don't understand the difference between me renting it from Netflix because we have a Netflix account and I can rent whatever I want to rent. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I'm condoning this. I'm just having a discussion here. <laughs> uh, like, what's the difference between me renting it and eventually arriving through Netflix and just downloading it? And eventually I would rent it, right? I mean, there's just a time delay. There's a forced time delay, right? It's like, okay, you want to watch The Sopranos Season 6, you okay. should do that. You should just get that. You should watch it whenever you bloody well please. And then just as a courtesy, also put it on your Netflix list and get it once and then send it right back. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's, it's there's just a little time bit shifting. <laughs> there's a little bit of absurdity here. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's good. But I, sometimes I wonder. And like for television shows that you know would normally watch on television, does it really matter if I – I mean obviously I have television. I have cable. I pay for that. <laughs> right. I don't know. Uh, the ads. You've got to watch the ads, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Well, we, that's um, the thing. The sources where you download them, typically they cut the ads out. But then when I watch on Media Center, I always skip. Like we have a 30-second skip uh, button on the remote, and I just skip, skip, skip until I get back to the television. But you know what's funny about that, though, is like I will actually stop to watch commercials. Like as I'm skipping, if I see something that catches my yeah. eye – I will stop, go back, and actually watch part of the commercial. They just have to make it good enough. This is if they yeah. make the commercials good enough, I'll I'll watch them a couple of times. I think that's a much more positive spin to put on it. It's like you just got to be better than the alternative. It's kind of like the piracy yeah. thing. It's not let's not fight it, right? It's like be better than it, right? Right. And I think so many times these media companies they don't get it. It's like no, no, no. It's not about the fighting. The fighting's not really going to get you anywhere, right? You're going to lose. Yeah, I'm not. I don't want to watch your goddamn diaper commercials. I'm never going to buy diapers. So just forget <laughs> it. You have no interest in showing me diapers, diaper commercials. Or like just another one that, time. That, I don't even like this one, but it freaks me out, so I'm aware of it, which is, I mean, again, successful advertising. The one with the baby who does stock trades, it just freaks me out. It's like a baby that's talking. <laughs> and It just freaks me out. I'm like, oh, I don't want to see it, but like, I, know of, I know about it, right? And I know it's oh. – Yeah. Yeah. That's why people who complained about like – what are they complaining about? Oh, the – It's uh, a waste of time. The uh, Mojave Experiment ads and the other Vista ad about um, – the PC rebuttal one. Yeah. I can't I read remember. All the people are PCs. I think Mojave Experiment was the one, but 
the thing I said to these people, and, and Will Shipley, who you, you know, hated that ad. He like took it very personally, the which I thought experiment. was hilarious. Yeah. He took it super personally. His whole blog entry about it and everything. And I told him, I was like, Will, on Twitter, I was like, Will, you understand, if you're talking about this, they are winning. You understand that, right? Like, you're talking about an ad that they did. <laughs> Granted, you're saying, oh, it's a crappy ad. It's not science, which to me is ridiculous. Because, I mean, it's like the Folgers, you know, test. It's like, right. was it ever really science? I mean, come on. <laughs> ads, the kind of ads at this level, there's a really interesting book for those of you that don't get why, what ads are for. A lot of people spoke about, like, the Vista, the Vista ads, and they said, this is not going to make me go buy Vista. All, like, all these I'm a PC ads. Uh, and... Um, uh, what, what they're missing is that that's not actually the goal of these ads. It, it, it's to, the, the, the ads are not intended to make you get up and go and buy the product that's being advertised in the ads uh, at all in, in any way, shape, or form. And now um, that might be a reasonable thing to expect an ad to do, but for these large national advertising campaigns that, that, that Microsoft does that are just these kind of vague brandy kind of, you know, where they're mentioning the brand and hopefully giving you positive feelings about the brand – they don't even have to give you positive feelings about the brand. Their goal is just to make is just to reestablish that they're a major player. All they want you to think is that there is a choice between Vista and Mac. That's all. That's the only thing they need to keep keep this in mind, and that they're like a major player because they have the major ads. So they're, they're long past the point of begging you to buy their products. Well, it's it's still a little bit of a problem though because I mean the PC is the standard. Right, I mean, the fact that you have to stand up and say, "Oh, we're still out here," um, it's just kind of. Well, I mean, why are there Coke ads? <laughs> Do you, the, well, there's something to make somebody go buy a Coke. It's there so that, you know, Coke, Pepsi. You know, the, you just have to have everybody has to have that in their mind, and they need to continue to cement that uh, relationship in. And an ad is almost like uh, it's almost like bragging that you are a large mainstream product in a way that, say, Fogbugs is not. Well, I guess here's what I'm trying to say. I'm not communicating very well. What I'm trying to say is. I think Apple got so far ahead in advertising and mindshare mm-hmm. uh, among a lot of people that the PC w- was perceived as the underdog. And I think that's just a colossal failure of, Given that on every possible level. Uh, like, of the market they control, they control the messaging so strongly. Uh, that's, that I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't personally believe that's true. I believe that there are two separate market categories. There's a sort of a luxury market category for home users and people choosing their own computers where Apple is the winner and there's a getting work done category where businesses buying computers uh, in order to accomplish certain things and run certain software. And that's the PC category. And they're just, they're, they're just different categories. They happen to share a lot in common and a lot of people get to choose between them. A lot of people don't, but, but those are just, just different categories. And, and so to say that Mac is winning in their particular category it's only the case because they cho- they chose a narrower niche than the PC category where they could not win. Well, here's my point, though. I think there's a fulcrum point where the Mac is becoming less of a niche. I really believe this. Like I, For a long time, it's true. Mac was just a tiny, tiny percentage. But I think yeah. they have enough mindshare now. They have enough of the... the I don't know. Call me, up, call me up when some insurance company starts buying their secretary's Macs. I, I think the door is open to that. That's what I'm saying. It's like I think they're making mm. serious major inroads. I don't and, think so. Not I don't think they're – it costs twice as much. Jeff, it's like two to three times as much money. It's like no corporation is going to do that. They just, she just I has know, to do but, email. She well, doesn't no, no, no. need a Mac. To be fair, I, I had a blog post about this. Apple has really narrowed the pricing gap too. I mean granted, there's still more. I mean, particularly, now what? the pricing gaps. Have you seen the price of laptops? They're like $400, $500 and then the Macs are like 1200 or 1300 
Well, but it, but if you do true apples now. to apples, a lot of times true the apples PC to apples. ones. It's just it's, somebody did this, like Gardner did this or something. It's like a hundred. The max. It's like more than a hundred percent premium. More than yeah. It, it varies. I know that at the time I looked at it, and this was particularly in the notebook area. Uh, it was surprisingly competitive. I, I think it varies depending because you know Apple only has one release cycle. They release a product, it stays the same price yeah. essentially forever until they release the next one. So when it starts out, They're it's really actually expensive. fairly competitive. I think over time it degenerates a little bit. Good. Laptops now, PC laptops are five hundred bucks, and you can't get anything from Apple for under eleven hundred or twelve hundred. Maybe I'd have to look at it in, in more detail, but I, check it out. Not to mention netbooks, which are even cheaper. Yeah, once you factor in netbooks, absolutely. But I think it's a different. No, but I'm talking category. about like like really nice, built out HP or or gateway uh, laptops, the 15 inch screens and just basically all the features in the world and the great video cards and video chips. All right, right. we're um um man, we should take a question from a listener or something. Yes, Do we have any Stack us. Overflow news? Have you uh, been to that I site do lately? actually. So uh, let me have just a few minutes to talk about this. So over a little bit over Thanksgiving and over the last couple of days, I was really doubling back on performance because I felt like our database has gotten to a certain size where you know we were starting to show places where we hadn't really thought through what we were doing with the queries or the code. Uh huh. Um, really? So I actually went through and improved uh, related questions. Was a big thorn in our side for a long time. Because we're using full text search, which in 2008 has some. Yeah. Until we get the patch, you're they're talking about related questions when you when you go into ask question and you start typing. That was one of the most expensive things that we did. Uh-huh. I think it was very very useful because I personally found it very useful. Like I would go into a question and you would see just a bunch of questions that, you know, spidered out and related to the particular question that you're on. I found a lot of really interesting stuff that way. I'd be looking at a question, I would go to related and see three or four things like, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's and. I don't know. It was just a great way to explore the site. I really enjoyed it, and I got a lot of positive feedback on it. Mm-hmm. But it was really expensive. Mm-hmm. the The way I fixed that, yeah, was God, that fast. <laughs> I just tried it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, so back in two thousand four, I did a little experiment. I don't even know why I did this, but I had a dictionary file. Oh. And I actually wondered if I did a search on Google for every word in that dictionary. Yeah. You know, Google tells you how many results there are. Um, I got we got to get a value back. So okay. I wrote a little script. That actually went through the entire dictionary. This is like a hundred and ten thousand word dictionary that I had, uh-huh. <laughs> and queried Google for all this stuff. I'm not sure you could even do this today. <laughs> I no. mean, I tried to be, you know, smart. Uh, when you get to about the third three thousandth word, you hear a knock on your door. <laughs> <laughs> well, they actually have a they have throttling now. They have a capture that kicks in if anything weird happens from your IP for too long. Um, but anyway, I have this file, so I know the the most common words according to Google as of like late 2004. So rather than – when I do related questions, it's, it's three things. It's the title, the tags, and the body. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I'm matching on. And I found that the problem with related questions wasn't necessarily the query because it's a union of three things. It's a union of those three things and then some weighting. It's weighted heavily towards tags, by the way. So if something's tagged wrong, the related oh. questions are usually correct. Wait, I don't even see the related questions. I get them when I type in the title. I didn't know that – do they change if I – No, no, no. Click on any question in Stack Overflow and then look in the right-hand column. Oh, I'm, I, I was I was thinking about when you're asking a question and it's no 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 oh all this related oh okay yeah. I didn't realize that's on every page yeah that's yes. on every page okay so it has to run at some point uh, we cache it pretty heavily um, so I realized the problem was it was matching too much stuff because mm-hmm. SQL Server's full text although it works great and I'm a fan minus the 2008 bug that we hit um, 
the more matches you get, the more expensive it is. Okay. So if you're matching on just really generic words, it's going to be really slow. So before I do the related like temp tables and stuff. Yeah, before I do the related questions queries, I filter, I remove all the stop words. I remove and then I remove particularly in the body, I remove almost all the common English words. You know what's really shocking when I did this? Mm-hmm. If you remove the 5,000 most common English dictionary words from a post, yeah. it is shocking how little is left of most text when you do that. <laughs> I mean, it's not like people need to walk around with, with thesaurus or anything, but it's just so much of communication Wait, is the what same. About, what about like, like Python? Is that one of the 5,000 most English? Like, are, no, are it there, isn't. Aren't there it tech isn't. words and, in that list somewhere? That's the other interesting thing is once you filter out, say, I actually do the top 10,000 words. Once you pull out the top 10,000 words, you're almost left with tags because you end up with really unique words that don't appear. That's really weird. But aren't there things like, like handle? Aren't there technical words? That's pointing? the other catch-22. This is why search is such a hard problem. And I got to tell you, I've done a lot of like code around search. And I can sort of understand why it would be fun to work at Google because I got to tell you, search is a really, really hard problem. And you're right. A common English word or say uh, two or three common English words together as a phrase could be a programming term. Right. So just blindly going through and ripping the words out, although it is what I do because it's naive and that's how I write my code. (laughs) And it's simple and it kind of works. And and realize, too, we're doing title and tags as well. This is just the body text. So we can Mm -hmm. strip out tons of the body and not really lose any information. Um, But, yeah, it it works well in the naive case. But if you want to do it really, really smart, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. So that was the fix for related questions. And then just today, I had a little epiphany about... (laughs) The way I was building, uh, when you browse, say, a list of all the questions or all the C-sharp questions or all the Java questions, um, I build a list of all the IDs that come back from that query. Mm. But I wasn't doing a good job of caching those IDs. So every on every page load, I would re-query the full list of IDs that you would be browsing. You know, pages 1 to 100, mm. there would be a list of IDs for that. So I'm caching that much more aggressively now. And, and then I had just some really dumb mistake in the code where I thought it was the uh, database that was slow, but it wasn't. It was actually my code was taking three to 400 milliseconds, depending on what you were doing. And I swore up and down it was the database, but then when I went in and started measuring it, it was indeed my own stupid code. And if you had been um, a C programmer, would you have discovered this sooner? Uh, doubtful. <laughs> What it taught me was that this <laughs> always happens to me. When I think I know what, where the performance is in a program. It never is. It, about, well, about half the time I'm right, and the other half I'm just completely wrong. It's like you should always just measure. So I actually went in and put in little stopwatch calls to see. I was like, where in the heck is this you know, routine right. spending all this time? Yeah. And it was just the way I was building sort of the, the tag list. First of all, I was doing the work over and over, which is dumb. I could have just cached the results, which is mm-hmm. what I should have done. Um, and second, uh, the way I was doing it just didn't really make any sense. And I guess I thought it was one of those, those operations like, oh, this will be plenty fast. I need to worry about this. And actually, it wasn't at all. As the number of tags went up, it got quite slow. What? Um, so did you see any results? Is this, uh... Oh, yeah. It's, it's dramatic. First of all, like when I'm looking at the, the query analyzer, mm-hmm. or excuse me, the SQL profiler, which shows you the time... I run that in tuning mode all the time, and I just watch all the queries that go through. There's almost nothing we do that takes more than like 200 milliseconds. Even 200 milliseconds, we don't have that many queries that take that long anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and before I made all these changes, we regularly had queries that took one to two seconds, e.g. related questions. 
um, and a lot of stuff that took three, four, five hundred se- milliseconds. Cool. But does this yeah. does it show up in like the load average being lower or the? Um, well, I don't know. We have it, so much capacity uh, server-wise; it would be really tough for us to overload. Okay. Um, but but the main thing it improves is individual per page response, particularly when you're browsing questions. Yeah, uh, like you're paging a list of all the you know the hottest you know Ruby questions or whatever. That's when you would see it. As you hit the next page, it's going to be much faster. I'm the other reason I want to do this is because we're going to start adding more stuff that slows the site down. <laughs> yeah. And before we do that, I wanted to make sure I had worked a little bit more on the performance. It's bound to happen. Just as the site gets larger and more and more answers are in there, we're just going to, I mean, we're getting more and more traffic at a pretty rapid rate. Well, exactly. Pretty exactly. steady growth in traffic. And, and and just so that I'm clear to everybody about what's going on, so Jeff Dalgus had his baby. It was a baby boy. Congratulations to Jeff. Mazel so, tov, mazel tov. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, uh, but uh, obviously he won't be working too much on Stack Overflow for a while. Um, and then uh, Jared, sort of the same situation. Jared, starting January 1st, hopefully will be full-time on Stack Overflow. That's the current plan. But until then, he's got other things he has to work on to make that possible. Um, the two big features those guys were working on that are kind of on a little bit of hiatus now is Jared is working on bounty for questions, e.g. you ask a question and you don't get an answer that you like. Mm-hmm. But it's not technically an unanswered question anymore. Mm-hmm. Somebody voted on it. It's got some answers. You just don't really like any of the answers that you got. So the concept of the bounty is you would actually put a, like a reward on this question, uh, some, some amount of reputation. You'll say, okay – plus 100 rep to anybody who can answer this to my satisfaction. And then on top of that, you can also slice off a piece of your own reputation to sweeten the pot even further. You could say, you know what? I, I'm, so, I, I, I'm so desperate to get an answer to this question. I'll give you 100 points of my own rep on top of the 100 bonus rep that you'll get for answering this. Hmm. Uh, that's what Jared was working on. And then what Jeff was working on was uh, essentially email notifications of things happening in the system um, like, say you don't come to Stack Overflow for a week, mm-hmm. no problem. That's fine. That's, we don't want you to come every day. But we would email you a summary of, okay, you weren't here for a week, but here's all the things that happened to your stuff in that week. That would be pretty uh, just cool. Just as a courtesy. Yeah. Just as a courtesy. I used to have this theory, which I, well, I don't think holds for Stack Overflow, but I had this theory that when you have like a Q&A place or a discussion group or something, um, you actually – I used to think, and I don't – hold this for Stack Overflow, but if you're trying to make a forum and you're trying to get people to answer each other's questions, uh, there, there was this old thing in the days of Usenet that you could do that was considered extremely rude, where you would ask a question on a Usenet group, and then you would say, please email me the answer. I don't read this group, which is this sort of obnoxious way of saying, I'm not going to participate in your little community here, but I'd really appreciate if you could answer my questions. Right. And uh, it's just obnoxious. And, and um, uh, not only that, but if if... If you don't have that option, if you have to keep coming back and scanning to try to see if your answer has arrived, then maybe when you come back, you'll kind of hang out and answer some newbies questions or some, you know, maybe you'll contribute to the group in some, in some, in some other way that you can while you're waiting for your answer to arrive. Right. No, that's a great point. And that was my old theory because you definitely would see if you're ever trying to get a discussion group going or a, or a Q&A site for your own product, like look at the Fogbugs discussion forum or something where you don't have that many people in there and you're just trying desperately to create a spark of people that will hang around um, you, for the first you know, certain number of years until you get to a certain critical mass, you have people just dropping in, asking a question and then disappearing and there's nobody really hanging out there to answer the questions. So. 
the uh, the um, um, email me when there's a response available for this. It just sort of encourages that. I don't really think that is an issue for Stack Overflow, frankly, because we have other ways to get people to answer questions. Well, the other thing it sets up for us is for people who, like, say you go on vacation or you forget that you even asked the question, it's just a nice way for us to have a gentle reminder of, say, hey, you know, you have these questions. Other people have been posting answers to your questions mm-hmm. while you were gone and, and leaving comments for you and things like that. I find this personally helpful. And do, have I talked about friend feed at all on this? I don't remember friend if I have. Feed. So FriendFeed is that Google startup by uh, the guy who uh, wrote Gmail, Paul. I can't remember his last name. Uh, I talked to him before. Yes, I met him. That, okay, this is something where you can follow your friends' blog feeds yeah. and Twitter posts and yeah. Flickr streams all at once. Yeah, it's basically a feed aggregation, and then friends can aggregate all their feeds and stuff. And <laughs> I'm actually not a huge fan of the site. I mean, I, I, I see don't what even it does. have. You know what? I barely even have friends that have feeds. Let alone <laughs> you. You don't have any friends. <laughs> Yes. Uh, but the one thing the site did that I thought was very clever and I actually liked and actually I haven't turned it off is since I went there and I set up like the feed for Coding Horror and the feed for my Twitter stream and that's pretty much the only feeds I have and I was like, okay, that's my friend feed. Then I was done. Uh, but what it does is every week it'll email me, every few days it'll email me any comments people have left on my stuff. And this is actually really cool and, and useful. Like it's usually interesting commentary about the that's things that that's the said. weirdest thing about like the comments on a blog post is that it's like this flash community that shows up for 10 minutes, talks about something, and then disappears. And if you show up kind of late to the game, your thing's not going to get read, or it'll get read three years later. Or... Yeah, and, and then I've seen also people leave comments on like really old friend feed items as well. That occasionally happens. Uh, but I, I want to copy this because one of the themes of Stack Overflow is I like to copy the features that I like from other sites. And this is a feature that I really like from friend feed. And I think we could do it on Stack Overflow as well. It's like, okay, you haven't been to Stack Overflow in a week. Here's what people were saying about your stuff. And it's all your stuff. And we're not going to game you and say, oh, you got to go to our site, tee hee hee. Here's this stuff. We can't tell you like three, you know, attractive women were searching for your profile, but we can't tell you anything about it until you <laughs> click on the link. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to give you the full feed. It's going to be all the the actual text that they left, uh, so you don't have to go back to our site at all if you don't want to. That uh, that's the thing that uh, Jeff is working on. And then one thing I'm going to actually do because it's actually starting to annoy me now and a number of people have requested this is when you come to the site like say you haven't been to stack overflow for three days mm-hmm. when you come back there's going to be a page that will show you everything that happened to your stuff kind of like that email that i scribed yeah except web page form oh like what i miss yeah here's what's happened since you were last here to your stuff nice primarily like okay it might include votes that were cast for or against you uh, comments that were left, answers that were left, um, badges you might have earned, all that stuff. Um, so I am going to do that because I find myself wanting that anyway, and people have been asking for it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. So I will be working on that. All right. So let's let's get to the questions. Sorry, I know we take cool. a lot of time. We're, well, we're running out of time, but we have, uh, we have one question that I wanted to play, actually. I thought was really good from David Ackerman. Hi, this is David from East Lansing, Michigan, and I'm graduating in a couple weeks with a CS major and have been on lots of interview trips. While some have given me offers, the ones that didn't have hurt my confidence more than I expected. Jeff, I know you get a lot of flack for some of your posts to Coding Horror. I was wondering how you stay positive when people are tearing you apart and how you make sure it doesn't happen again. Thanks. That's for you, well, Jeff. Actually, 
Well, actually, Joel, I would like to hear your, because you've actually been doing this much longer than I have, really, in the big scheme of things. And I think you probably saw the, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's how you, I, I was on your radar because I wrote a big post critical of you. So you did? how did it feel, Joel? What post critical of me? The one about the, the whole wasabi thing, remember? No. Really? Wait, now i got to find this on the internet. You wrote something critical of me? You sick bastard. I'm going to... I'm just kidding. I, I actually wanted you to answer this because I think you are, 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 you're, you've developed a pretty good... Um, uh, what's the technical term? Thick skin? Rhinoceros well, skin? Maybe the reason you want me to answer it because I have comments enabled. So when I write something that's a mistake, people can actually point out my mistake in I, very bold strokes, right? The, um, yeah. And see, I just never make mistakes, so I don't have that problem. But I do have the other problem, which is idiots that misunderstood, that don't have enough brains to comprehend what I'm trying to say, coming up with a random flotsam in some completely other forum altogether. Well, I, and I've met other bloggers, I'm not going to name any names, who are yeah. extremely sensitive. I mean, they it, it really shocked me, the depth to which, like, privately they would tell me how much these comments really hurt them. They do. Like I, when people... They don't hurt you. They hurt me. Well, I think you start to question yourself, and I've, I've heard you talk about this, where eventually you hear it enough, and mm -hmm. you start to really start to second-guess yourself about what you're doing and how you're doing it, and whether it actually makes sense or not. And I think sometimes this has a basis, like the NP-complete thing I wrote. Really, part of it was wrong. I mean, I'm going to be up front and say I, I probably it was just that one sentence to be fair to me yeah. but it yeah. wasn't really correct right. and, and that's okay and that's the purpose of comments is for people to say hey look you're really wrong about this here's why so people reading it can get your opinion and right. then get right. other people's opinions and this is the basis of Stack Overflow as well and a bunch of other community sites on the web um, you know what the, the, the difference is that Stack Overflow and, and maybe I'm just not looking in the right place like there's a question here how old are you but <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, uh, the um, uh, Stack Overflow is so much about the code that you don't see the kind of ad hominem attacks that you see in discussions around um, blog posts. I mean, if you look at let me, let me um, like I'll, I'll write things even though I don't have comments enabled on my website. Uh, you know, they get linked to from from these community ranking sites and stuff like that, and then people will discuss them elsewhere. You know, some other group of people away will discuss my posts. And you know what? Like half the time it's ad hominem. And half the time, like literally meaning like, well, would you believe this because Joel is just a Microsoft bigot or Joel just hates Microsoft or Joel just loves Microsoft or whatever it may be or Joel is just trying to sell fog bugs. It's, it's, it's never about the, the, the essence of what I'm claiming. And if it is about the essence of what I'm claiming, all, all the posts are like completely contradictory. Like, well, everybody should know this. Well, you know, or or you know, this is just this is just obvious, or um, this is completely wrong. <laughs> Everybody knows this isn't true, or whatever it may be. And there's just not, you know, there's not a lot of value. It's not like oh, there was a technical error here, and here's the correction to that technical error, which is what you would have. I mean, Stack Overflow goes. I mean, maybe it's a completely different thing than the kind of blog post that I write. Whereas everything I'm writing has a huge amount of subjectivity to it and a huge amount of touchy-feeliness. And on Stack Overflow, it's, there's a specific question and it has a specific answer. And you either got it or you didn't. And, right. um, and so, so people, they don't go ad hominem on you. They don't, you don't necessarily know the person. You, know, you don't necessarily know who these people are that you're 
that you're that you're talking to. They're just names. Um, and for a long time, I got to say the the community. Uh, I would say in the last year or so, you, you reach a certain critical point where you you have enough people watching mm-hmm. that the percentages change. Where there's enough of a percentage of people who just decide they hate you <laughs> for reasons that really aren't rational. It doesn't even it doesn't think, even matter. They just uh, yeah. And I was actually I was actually talking to my wife Betsy about this, and and I think the first time I ran into this, you you try to sort of reason with them in the comments, like, well, I don't really understand where you're coming from here, you know, with this complaint and, and, and you sort of drill down into it. And what you eventually arrive at is they just don't like you for yeah. whatever reason. It has nothing to do with the base of the argument, whether it's correct, incorrect, no. whether, you know, it's just, they just don't like you. They don't like your persona. They just don't like the cut of your jib, right? They just, they're never going to agree with you because they don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the bottom line. And, and I, it's like, I think, and it's not fair because they, because we're both likable people. Well, I'm not, but you—you you certainly are. And and you know, if they if they met you in real life, they would like you. Well, yeah, of course. And I, I think there's a filter here. You have to. I guess the one thing I would say is like, and I tried to. I actually even wrote this into the fact at uh, Stack Overflow is, is is you know try to bring your sense of humor right. And I think if people can see that you're not taking this too seriously, whether it's criticism or praise or whatever, I think they're more willing to be on your side than they normally would be. Whereas if you're somebody that's totally serious and you take everything as a personal, you know, affront and <laughs> yeah. I think if you can be a little bit self-deprecating and not take yourself or the people commenting on your stuff too seriously and sort of have the attitude of, okay, this is all sort of in good fun. We're trying to accomplish something here, right? It's not just a lark of like, oh, we're going to make stupid jokes about farting and stuff. But, you know, there's, there's a thing we're trying to do. And that thing for coding horror is like, let's get better at what we do. And that's always really kind of been the focus. It's like, I'm really interested in, I, I love this stuff, right? And that's why I talk about it. And I, I would love to get better at it. And, mm-hmm. and the, the reason I want to get better is because I'm, I'm, I'm not the best programmer in the world. I don't think anybody's the best programmer in the world. I think we're good, all good at different things. And we all bring different things to the table. Um, and that's why I have comments on, so that people can bring those perspectives to the table and point out when I make mistakes, of course. I mean, I make tons, right? And it is scary. It's scary, too, to, to put yourself out there. And I think somebody posted a comment on the MP Complete thing. It's like, wow, how could you even post this, you know, with, without knowing absolutely certain that you're right? And I said, well, how do you ever really know that what you're saying is, is right? I mean, you try to have some due diligence, of course. You're not going to just post, you know, what, just make things up and post them. But I did research on the topic, and I felt it was a really challenging topic. Like, I... I a, I'm not good at math. I've talked about this. And B, I really didn't like the Wikipedia articles. I still do not feel I've read the definitive article on explaining that to a layman. Maybe really Malcolm Gladwell will write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a ch- my point is it's a challenging topic, and I don't think a lot of people would get it right. Like you know those logic puzzles of you know, like the Monty Hall problem. Yeah. Like almost nobody gets that right. And like right, right. the airplane on a treadmill. I found out there's two banned topics. <laughs> this was my funny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On the XKCD forums, the two band topics are airplane on a treadmill and and (laughs) 0.999999 equals one. one. You cannot talk about those topics, right? (laughs) So there's certain things that are just hard to understand, right? Like they just, some people go one way, other people go another way, and and that's okay. The airplane on a treadmill should be possible. The 0.999 I can understand, but the airplane, you know, this was the funniest thing. Speaking of airplane on a treadmill, um, I, I was just, I was, I'm just sorting through my really, really old blog posts that I wrote to try to see if any of them deserve to be called out. Um, and I'm, I'm making these little reading lists for people that are new to my site so they can read the important stuff and then leave. And um, 
so I'm looking through some old blog posts and I discovered when remember the the Concord crashed? Mm-hmm. It like it was like zooming down the runway in Paris and, and it bumped into a piece of metal that had been dropped off of a Continental Airlines DC ten or something and, and like literally crashed on the runway and everybody died. And they interviewed a fellow getting on a Concorde the next day or whenever the flights resumed. And he said, well, I'm not a statistician, but I know that, that statistically it's completely impossible for two Concords to crash. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny. And, 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 and I, well, I wanted to say to him, but I wasn't the reporter, I wanted to say to him, well, you know, even if you're not a statistician, you must wonder, how does the Concorde you're getting on know about the other Concorde that crashed? <laughs> <laughs> I can't crash because somebody else already did. <laughs> Just like you can't flip a coin and have, you know, 50 heads in a row, that's impossible, right? Right. So there's some things that you don't have to be a statistician, but that one the the money hall the money uh money hall problem is that what it's called is a classic. Uh, it's like it's like the Bayes Bayesian laws of, you know. Anyway, um right. We, we let's get back it's, to answering this uh, David's question here about how to stay positive. I don't. Um, what can I say? When I when I get, if I get um, uh, massive dejection, rejection, and criticism, uh, it just bums me out for about a day, and then I get over it. What can I say? I do get. I do actually get bummed out. So your advice is to cheer up. That's, no, that's I, I just you know it, it it it's possible to get bummed out. You can't. You couldn't be. You couldn't be a blogger, really, unless you're writing for twenty of your close friends, uh, and, and not and occasionally get negative. Sure. Uh, I mean, and, and bad things will happen to you, and that's you know, and that's that's a part of putting yourself out there. And if you're not, I mean, I don't want to get all inspirational and stuff, but if you're not applying to a few jobs that you get rejected from, you're probably applying for jobs that are too easy, and you, you're just you're selling yourself short. You know what I mean? You're not you're selling your career short. You well, I'll tell you, the mistake I made with MP completeness really motivated me to revisit that topic and do better. Right? Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> putting yourself out there, you get feedback yeah. about how you're doing. And, and yes, some of that feedback can be painful, right? Uh, but if you don't get it, you're never really going to improve. It's, it's, it's kind of like, and I talked about this in previous podcasts, some of my frustrations of, of people who, I would always tell them, oh, you should definitely blog. It, it does great things for your career. It's just good, good writing exercise. And it's just not really in them personality-wise to do right. that. And I think you hit on one of the key reasons it's not. It's because you're putting yourself out there. Every time you write something and publish it you know, in public, it's an opportunity for people to kind of dump on you a little. Yeah. And, and you got to be comfortable with that, right? You got to say, hey, look, what I'm going to, I feel good enough about what I'm doing that it counterbalances any potential criticisms that, right. you know, and, and the no risk scenario is just not to do anything. But no, you know, you're not going to gain anything by that no risk scenario either. Yeah. So I mean, that's the balancing act. But the frustrating thing for me is that I think personality-wise, I think it's a very difficult bridge for a lot of people to cross. It doesn't bother me because, honestly, I'm just I'm just not really that sensitive to criticism. Like on some level, like I, I don't care. I don't want to sound glib, but I don't know. I, I just do the things I do, and some people are going to like them and some people aren't. And I, I think if everybody likes you, mm-hmm. you're doing something wrong. Let me just put that out there. <laughs> That is a problem. I mean, there's certain personalities. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to everybody like you. It's just not possible. It cannot be done. But I think a lot of people just they won't admit it. But that's really kind of what they're shooting for. And I don't even pretend to shoot for that. Like, I don't want people to hate me, but I, I I'm okay with some people not liking me. And I think it's actually a measure of success. I mean, if if everybody likes you, you're just not doing anything interesting. <laughs> right. Right. Really. They just don't care. 
they yeah, must not you're not care. really inspiring anybody. If you're getting 100% positive feedback, you're yeah. not, you're not trying I, I hard enough. I think that's a, a tough pill for people to swallow, is that you're going to have to kind of have an unstated goal of, of kind of pissing some people off a little, or at least making them uncomfortable to some degree. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I've spoken about and I've written about, and this doesn't really go to David's question at all, but... Um, you know, I found that over time, writing um, Joel on software, years and years of getting feedback from people um, has caused me to write more and more defensively because, uh, you know, I, I basically now need to, you know, when I write something, I think of all the possible ways in which people are going to misinterpret this and write some stupid thing saying, you know, misinterpreting it. And then I have to sort of defensively build in whatever the mechanism is. Uh, yeah. and, to, and, and what winds up happening is that my articles become longer and longer and longer as I need to build stronger and stronger defenses around every possible misinterpretation and, and malevolent interpretation. Um, and, and I think it's a little bit of a myth that you need to do that. I mean, I think people want to do that because they want to do the right thing. But if you look at like websites that are successful and, and sort of personalities that are successful, I mean, look at John Dvorak. We've talked about this. John Dvorak is essentially crazy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... On some level, but it's just that he keeps writing stuff, you know, and people ultimately respect the, the continual stream of writing more than they do any one particular thing that was really wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, volume is not the right word, but uh, <laughs> keeping at it is, is what people, I think, value more than any one individual misstep that you'll make. Let me, uh, let me get a quote. There's a quote here. Um, uh, Michael Pryor, the co-founder of Fog Creek, his brother is a uh, philosophy professor at, uh, oh, I can't keep track of where he is right now, I think NYU. Um, but um, he uh, he wrote a, an article called Guidelines on Writing a Philosophy Paper, um, which I don't even know where to find it anymore. I don't know if it's on the web anymore, um, but it used to be. And he wrote this for his students at Harvard when he was a philosophy professor there. And now this is what he wrote, and it's about telling people how to write philosophy papers. He said, pretend that your reader is lazy, stupid, and mean. He's lazy in that he doesn't want to figure out what your convoluted sentences is supposed to mean, and he doesn't want to figure out what your argument is if it's not already obvious. He's stupid, so you have to explain everything you say to him in simple, bite-sized pieces. And he's mean, so he's not going to read your paper charitably. For example, if something you say admits of more than one interpretation, he's going to assume you meant the less plausible thing. So uh, uh, that is sort of it's, – it's sort of like uh, what um, – I don't know who calls designing for extremes. You know, the idea that if you assume the worst of your of – your, if you're designing a user interface, assume your reader is distracted, can't read, can't use the mouse, is not paying close attention to what you're doing and doesn't know very much about anything, and your user interface will be easier for everybody, not just the people that are, um, that are lazy, stupid, and mean. And uh, it's, it's very, very similar in writing. You have to uh, – w- when you're writing something, you really do have to assume all the worst possible interpretations. Sometimes I like to play with that. I think I once wrote something about the Messiah riding his white ass into Jerusalem. Um, nice. Um, w- w- just waiting for somebody to say, why do you assume the Messiah is going to be white? <laughs> because they didn't understand that. The ass is white, and that is the actual prophecy, <laughs> uh, that there is no claim that the Messiah is going to be white. And that, um, uh, you know, sometimes I'll deliberately try to do things to trip up people that are going to be lazy, stupid, and mean, and, and misinterpret the things that I uh, write. But uh, uh, usually you do just sort of have to assume. You have to think about every sentence that you write and say, you know, what are all the possible ways in this can be what – what, 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 what are the stupidest possible ways in which this can be interpreted? 
or the least charitable. And you have to do the opposite. You know, this is something that um, that uh, uh, my, my coworker Dan taught me. You have to do the opposite when you read things that people say, uh, especially when it's polemics, when it's arguments, arguments about politics, arguments about you know whether pair programming is the right thing or whether outsourcing should work or if we should have more H-1B visas. When you read these arguments, you always have to give the the writer the benefit of the doubt. You just have to. Because there's so many possible ways to interpret something that, that somebody has written. There's so many possible ways to misinterpret something that somebody has written that no matter what, you can always make an argument. You can always find an argument with them just by misinterpreting what they said by being uncharitable. And so you have to give them the most charitable possible, possible meaning. Don't assume you can't pick on them for saying something which is wrong when there is an, another obvious interpretation that's not wrong. You know, when, when, when um, um, uh, during the last presidential election, there was something, some case where, where Barack Obama talked about putting lipstick on a, on a pig. And, um, and, and this was interpreted as being, a bunch of people jumped on this to interpret this as being misogynistic against Sarah Palin. And it's obvious that, that, that Barack Obama is not a misogynist. And uh, it's obvious that that's not what he meant. And, um, or, or maybe it's not, but you, you, you can interpret it any way you want. And the only way to have a reasonable debate with somebody is to be charitable in, in, in interpretation of, of what they write. Right. Well, if, if that's their goal. But you've got to realize a lot of people's goals is not necessarily to be charitable. It's like to basically – To win points. Well, no. It's, it's, it's an ego yeah. display. It's like a peacock type of thing. But for some people, they really do want to have a discussion. I think you've got to be able to identify those two people and tell yeah. them apart because you're just wasting your time with mm-hmm. the latter – kind <laughs> yeah and then too to me it's like there's one person you need to satisfy with all this stuff and, that, and that's you my mom right oh <laughs> well no no you're really writing to satisfy yourself and on some level you have to really believe that you can't just say it; you have to believe it and for me it's kind of easy because i think i have a little bit of a quirky personality in that regard but it's really true you're writing so that you can find stuff later and that things that you enjoy and you're the only person you need to satisfy not you know, other people. So, I mean, that, that applies to interviews as well. I mean, you just want to get better at interviewing, right? You want to show well and do, you know, do better than you did last time. And then you've essentially succeeded. Yeah. Look, I mean, everybody tells me when you're in high school, right, you had to apply to three colleges at least, right? You apply to your safety school, the school you really wanted to go to and a stretch school. And it's stupid not to just try applying to a stretch school because what if you get in? Um, and similarly, uh, you know, when you're applying for, for jobs, you should be applying for uh, a variety of jobs. And, and not only that, but there's another key thing uh, to remember. If, if you actually go through and read um, all my advice for recruiters who are hiring uh, programmers, um, uh, one thing that I point out a lot is that for the company, it's a lot better to reject someone good than to accept someone bad. Uh, if, you, if you accept someone bad, it just takes forever to get rid of them. It's impossible to fire them. It can take a long time. You waste a lot of money. If you reject someone good, eh, okay, you spend a little bit of money on the interview, but you'll find someone else good, uh, you know, assuming that you're a company that has more applicants than, than available positions that are qualified. And, and so uh, as a result, a good, a, 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 a smart software company or a smart engineering company or whatever, when they're uh, recruiting people, they're going to reject a lot of people that might have been good. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the people are not good. It just means that they, can't, they haven't convinced themselves of that. And they're they're just they're being kind of safe, and it's, it doesn't seem very fair, but it is the correct. I mean, it is the the logical, pragmatic, useful behavior for a company to do that. 
to, um, you know, they'd rather not make a mistake in hiring, uh, but by, by, uh, by letting someone in. And if they accidentally reject some good people, that just really doesn't hurt them very much. So uh, as a result, um, uh, the good companies are very, very strict and um, often will set up, you know, bas- basically impenetrable barriers uh, to getting hired. And um, wh- what that means is, you know, I-, I had a friend who is one of the best programmers I know, and he applied for an internship at Microsoft. And I found out later that he didn't get it because the recruiter had this messy sheet of paper where she was copying names from sheet to sheet. And at some point she forgot to copy his name from the messy sheet onto the clean sheet. And he just never got called back. And <laughs> that was the whole reason. And she said, oh, well. <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of a major, uh, it sort of had a major impact on this guy's life. But uh, that's just life. Uh, and um, and it's, it doesn't, you know, it hasn't really hurt Microsoft that much. Didn't right. hurt him either. Do you have a Stack Overflow question? You wanna? I do. All right. I do. This one. This one is a classic, and I don't think I've. Ta- I might have mentioned this one in passing, but I want to really highlight it because it's, it's really one of my favorite things that's been posted on Stack Overflow because it gets to the core of how you how you ask questions that other people will actually respond to and answer. <laughs> yeah. And it's, the title of it is, "How do I get attention for my old and unanswered questions?" That is sort of a problem. It is sort of a problem, and that's what the bounty system is going to address, and that's a kind of a high-priority item. It's probably the number one thing Jared's going to work on is like starting January 1st. We're going to get it in as soon as we can. But that said, um, I, I like this question, uh, because, particularly because the answer, and I wish you could vote this up like 53 times, uh, by Ice Lava, really summarized, I think, how I do this on any forum that I'm participating in. If you want people to to pay attention to your question – you have to pay attention to your question. You see a lot of drive-by questions that happen where people say, oh, I'm having this problem, I did this, give me the answer. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for people to really put their hooks into that because, A, you've got to really show them that you've done the work, right? Mm-hmm. You've got to describe, okay, then I tried this, man, that didn't work, and that was terrible, and then, oh, I tried this other thing that I found here, and you link to it, right? You're building up this knowledge base of here's the problem. Yeah. You define the problem in as clear a way as you can, and you continue to research the problem over time. So yeah. if a day oh, later yeah, a nobody's answer. found the answer, yeah, 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 yeah. you need to get off your butt and find more stuff about the problem. Uh, yeah, certainly. They, they, keep what would you have detail. done before Stack Overflow existed? You know, you must have had a... Yeah. Well, that's right. And I found myself like in other discussion boards that I participate in. It's the same exact principle. You know, if you want people to pay attention to your stuff, you have to pay attention to your stuff. And people will respond in kind. And particularly once they start seeing that you're building this this useful information that they can then you know glom on and add into, that's where the wiki type aspect comes in. They feel like they're really building something interesting versus, oh, you have error twelve, you know, reboot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just not really interesting. You got to like tell a detective story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I saw somebody oh, okay. do this. They came back to, and, and he's a really high profile Stack Overflow user. I'll look up his, uh, put him in the show notes. He came back to a problem he had. He's a Delphi programmer. Mm-hmm. They had this video problem uh, with, uh, I think it was Windows, I don't know if it was Delphi. It was Windows Forms, I think. And it turned out it was the video driver that was causing this error in their code. Uh, and it Let took me them guess, like was it an ATI, ATI video card? 
No, actually, it was NVIDIA, so they're all bad, oh. in case you were wondering. <laughs> uh, but I just love the tenacity, and I really yeah. admire that. And I think other people admire that. And You're doing that anyway. You know what? It's not tenacity. They're doing that anyway because they've got to solve their problem at work. And so, I understand. And, 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 and it's, just, uh, it's, just, it's just like having the second step is the courtesy to then report on that to Stack Overflow so it'll be beneficial to somebody in the future. Is a part of like being in the community and making uh, you know making uh, contributions, as well as uh, the, sucking down answers. Right. And the other specific advantage is that it bumps the question. So every time you edit, every time you add an answer to your own question, it's going to get bumped to the top of the list again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you want to do that anyway, so that it's on as many people's radar as possible. And, y- and you're not just bumping for the sake of bumping because that's not cool at all, actually. But you're actually adding useful parts of your story into the post. So mm-hmm. I don't know. This is the, what I always point people to, and it's been linked in the FAQ and a bunch of other places, but I just, it's one of my favorites. So but it can never be emphasized enough as far as I'm concerned. Cool. So what about you? Do you well, have, way to go. Favorite? I slava for that, for that answer. Um, I, I kind of like these neat answers that actually solve the problem in a elegant kind of way. Um, yeah, here, uh, uh, um, um, these are, this is going to be very unrelated. Unrelated. It's going to be like a whole other topic. Um, uh, must-haves for developer's office. What do you have to have in a developer's office? Oh, this is right up your alley. It is. Well, because, first, let's define the question. When you say must-have, what are we talking about? The, I don't know. It just says, what are your must-haves for a developer's office? What things can't you live without? Well, I guess as a developer. A, a so wait, wait, wait. Let me just paint the picture. Wings. So if I'm a developer, I could walk into a space yeah. and say, this is what I want in... My not 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 the entire office, but my part of the office. Yeah, I don't know. He doesn't really define that. <laughs> well, let's <laughs> let's define it for him. Okay. So let's say, given an eight by eight foot space or whatever the that's size your personal is. office. I guess you're implying that 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 you know what? Actually, that's kind of interesting. Is that, that it's kind of strange that it's not that common for programmers to have their own office. Well. Space. I mean, there could, it could be like an open space. There could be another person next to it. But certainly, you have some amount of personal space that other right. people aren't going to violate on a regular basis, right? Mm, maybe. <laughs> I would. Think. You might just have a desk. You know, most companies. That's what it is. You have a table. Well, I said space. Monitor. I didn't say office, did I? I said you have a space. It doesn't necessarily imply office. There's, there's no other programmer occupying the same the same space as the atoms of your body are occupying at that particular time, necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're getting a really bad job. <laughs> yes. But um, it may not be that much space. So that's the first thing, right, is you want space in the doors and the walls around you and the door. Yeah. Well, that and the noise factor. I don't really mind other programmers working close to me. Like, I don't need necessarily a personal space, per se, but it has to be quiet. You I mean, know? So what and if I they think... – like, the phone rings and they get the phone call? Or even – Well, that's where – that's where the proximity becomes an issue. It's, this it's is not why that I don't I even want. believe that's possible. I mean, somebody comes, you can be as far as, away as you want in a big open space from another programmer, and somebody goes and asks them a question, and you're going to hear it. It's going to interrupt you, distract you, because it's going to be interesting. Well, it, it, that's true. I guess, I guess it depends. And I guess if, if everybody has an office, then you always have the ability to opt out of that situation, whereas... Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the first key decision you have to make: is <laughs> how much noise can I tolerate? If the answer is lots, then maybe it doesn't matter. There's a. It's not just noise. Actually, there's sort of a function here where it's like there's background noise which you can tolerate any amount of. You know what I discovered recently? 
I, I can program really, really well watching those old crappy sitcoms that are on TV at 6 o'clock. Like, <laughs> like Friends and, and Frasier and Cheers and stuff. Seinfeld, I've seen them all 18 times. And they're not that good. And, they, they're, and because it's, the, it's that period of the day where they're showing 15 minutes of the... Like they're, they're showing a very highly compressed edited version of that Seinfeld episode and a lot of ads for cars and, and, and pizza delivery because it's near dinner time. Right. Anyway, I, sitting in front of that, I can program like there's no tomorrow. But if two people are having a, an interesting conversation like 23 feet away, that'll, that'll screech me to wall for the next three weeks. That, that is true. That is very, very true. It's really the con- it's really other people having conversations that you're interested in. Uh, well, the reason I'm being the reason I'm being a little extra hesitant here with this is, I, I know you do it at Fog Creek, but in my experience, having your own private office for better or worse is one of the hardest things to get. Yeah, never going to happen. Office. Exactly. I know. I've been I've been I've been um, advocating for eight years, and I don't think anybody has taken my advice. Well, there's these four guys in Australia that did, but uh, other than that, so I, I, I'm I'm basically for you on this. I believe. All other things being equal, it's you should have the op the option to have your own office because it, it's by far the most flexible option because you can be totally quiet or you can be in the conversation. You you have choice at that point, mm-hmm. um, and you you'd rather have choice than not have choice, right? But if out of the gate you're going to come up and say, you know, I have to have a private office, that's kind of a tough negotiating position to start with. Mm-hmm. Versus say what I was going to get into is like, okay, you want to have two large monitors that's kind of a given that's a lot easier to get usually yeah <laughs> um so I, I guess it's a case of like picking your battles and figuring out what's important to you but certainly in terms of fundamentals uh, i would say two large monitors two large uh, i don't i can live with uh depends on the type of development i'm doing but um I, a, th- a 30 inch monitor is about the limit of my range of what i can see without turning my head so i don't even need another monitor i would there's a lot of developers here that have two monitors. A lot of them just have the one 30-inch monitor and just don't need another one or don't even turn on their second monitor, believe it or not. There is actually. Really? Yeah, there's a bunch of people who are saying, like, I, I, I got them on videotape. I got Brett the other day saying, you know, it turns out that 30 inches really sort of is terminal, terminal monitor size in the sense that any more than that and things are just too far away. Wow. There are corners of my 30-inch monitor I never use. <laughs> they're, just too, they're just too far away from the main uh, well, you know, this gets into a point of, like, I've always felt that uh, more is always better, but I, I'd always sort of felt that, like, having two not quite as large monitors was actually a little bit more useful than one giant monitor, mm-hmm. because you actually have two panes. Yeah, that so you can that arrange you, like, on. maximize a window, it'll only stay in the current window, it'll only use half of your real estate, for example. You just spend, there's a whole, there's, I have a blog post about this, but there's a whole, like, window excise tax that really comes into play on large monitors that you don't understand until you you use one Mm -hmm. that actually manipulating windows is kind of a no-win scenario it's not really getting you a whole lot and it's a lot of work yeah um and you don't normally have to do that on say you had three 17 inch monitors you would just always maximize everything there's no thinking involved Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so anyway but so what are some of the things in the in the stack overflow thread that, that were mentioned I'm kind of curious now. Um, uh, number one was the chair. Number two was uh, two uh, whiteboards. Whiteboards. Number three was the the wall, four walls and a door. And uh, number four is uh, controlling the lighting, which is interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. 
Oh, so, yeah, because some people like it dark. You know, chair, that was an obvious one. I should have mentioned that. So, yeah, I, I agree with those. Two, mo- two, two monitors, I think two is It's quiet. easy to forget the chair. Once you've had a comfy chair for a while, like I've been sitting in an Aeron chair for 10 years and, or eight years that we've had Fog Creek, and I just forgot that you could feel a chair. <laughs> you know, But I do definitely remember prior to getting an Aeron chair that after four, five, six hours sitting in, a, in, in even the, the better office chairs, you would feel them. They right. start to they start to irritate you in some way or another. No, I, I think that's a great list. I, I basically am in complete agreement with it. So we got monitors, uh, chairs. We hit the monitors. The, the the chairs are easy. There's air on. There's a new one that Herman Miller makes. It's pretty good. And there's a bunch of clones yeah. that are pretty decent. Um, the these mesh, are the ones I like to I like to push on these because I feel like yeah. you can actually get these. Yeah, this is just money. And yeah. it's not that much money over the course of I mean, an air on chair. The, the, literally, I am sitting in an air on chair that I bought the day that we founded Fog Creek. Uh, Eight years, eight years ago, and wow. uh, and it's it's virtually indistinguishable from a new chair. Like if you looked at this, you could not tell that it's eight years old. And, and these things last forever; they're in, completely indestructible. Um, uh, monitors uh, last uh, easily five, six years. You know, they last through several computers. Um, whiteboards. We always had whiteboards. Whiteboards are useful, and they're sort of necessary to talk. Uh, in the new office, we have glass instead of whiteboards. Um, just because it gets cleaner, it looks nicer. It's a little bit more expensive, and uh, yeah, lighting. Lighting is a good one because I wouldn't have thought of that. The, the other thing is, is, if you can't get an office, mm-hmm. be prepared to be very upfront about the whole noise issue and yeah. sort of make that <laughs> push that to the forefront. So depending, yeah, yeah, you know, so they appreciate that it's kind of a big deal that the phone's ringing all the time, and because a lot of times people just because particularly people in management. You know they work through the through interruptions, so they don't really understand <laughs> that interruption is not really the way everybody works. Their work works. is interrupting. <laughs> their work is interrupting. <laughs> that's what that, their work that's, is. It's really true. So they don't they don't get it like on a very fundamental no. level. It's, look, no, the phone it's, ringing is like a big deal. It's it's the <laughs> concentration. People having conversations is a big deal, mm-hmm. and be prepared to have that conversation. Is I guess what I would say to people. So steal yourself a little bit for that. Um. Yeah. I, there's, there's more we could talk about with the private offices. I could go on and on about this for days, but uh, um, uh, uh, we're running out of time. All righty. And um, uh, let's, what are the announcements that we usually make at the end of the show? Um, first of all, uh, there is, um, we, we, we do appreciate your feedback and calling questions and stuff like that. Um, I'm getting a little bit behind, but that's okay. I, I, uh, I would still like to hear from you, and we'll try to play the good ones. And if you um, have any feedback that you want to leave for us or if you have any questions that you want us to uh, talk about, uh, then give us a call on the Stack Overflow hotline. The number for that is um, 646-826-3879, country code 1 because we're in the U.S., 646-826-3879. Or you can email uh, an MP3 or Ogvorbis file to podcast at stackoverflow.com. There's also a wiki where you can uh, um, write up, where people write up transcripts of the show. A um, bunch of volunteers have been uh, generating, uh, have been writing transcripts on there for the hearing impaired, uh, which is very helpful and also makes our podcast somewhat more searchable. And um, that is uh, linked to from the show notes at blog.stackoverflow.com. It's, uh, the wiki is hosted by Fogbugs, so you can also get to it from stackoverflow.fogbugs.com. Yep. Anything else? No, I think that's it. All right, see you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. 
The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.